Welcome to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I am Adam Comerow, your host as always here with my buddy Ray Holloman. And this is going to be kind of the first of our weekly recaps. We're going to do these as much as we can. And Duke, they just played and pretty much destroyed their first two ACC opponents, um, which were Clemson and Wake Forest. And I got to say... So it's going to be Zion Williamson Gushfest 2019 because starting next against Florida State, it gets real. I mean, back in November, I was saying like that's when the season officially starts. Everything is kind of gravy up until this point. There's a lot of learning going on, a lot of adjustments, which is fun to watch these young guys go through everything for the first time. Yeah, so it's been a nice start um, since last week. Now uh, Duke is 2-0 in the ACC, I believe 14-1 and overall with uh, upcoming Saturday game against Florida State on the road. What are your thoughts on Duke's first two games? ACC games. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, 13-1 and out of the first 14, 2-0 in the ACC. So, um, you know, uh, to your point, um, you know, not the best level of competition to start uh, the uh, conference, but you're always looking for, um, you know, little lessons that you can take away. So the arc of this season for Duke is uh, at this point going to be how well can they execute in the half court? Are they going to be able to win games when they're not winning games just in transition? You know, are they going to be able to diversify – um, their offensive approach uh, and get away from, you know, an ISO sort of game that's going to struggle in a lower possession uh, environment, you know. And I think in the first couple of games, we saw some nice things that were happening uh, happening out of Duke there. So, you know, again, not the best level of competition, but I felt, uh, you know, I, I think it was a pretty good start for Duke. You saw a lot of the boxes checked off that you wanted to, um, particularly once you got out of the first, you know, 20 minutes or so against uh uh, Clemson, but even then, you know, you saw Duke attacking more with Zion. You saw some different sorts of ways with offense. Zion became a little bit more—I don't want to say selfish—but he, he started looking for a shot a little bit more, and that's you know exactly what they want to see. You know, the last two games have almost been the two games in which this became Zion's team. Um, you know, more clearly than you know RJ Barrett's team. All right, so going over real quick, I'll say first, Clemson not a deep team, and they play super slow. So those two combined factors, they were able to keep it slow versus Duke for 13 minutes. And then once Elijah Thomas picked up his second foul, which was an extremely smart play by Trey Jones, really driving into him and forcing him into that foul, basically the momentum changed. And that's the thing. I mean, you can say uh, just because Duke goes on a run, you can get back in it. I mean, it's tough when you face a team as talented as Duke. So once the tempo changed, it just started flooding. And basically, from the end of the first half to the second, um, to the beginning of the second, there was an 18-0 run, and that was just it. I mean, the first 13 minutes of that game, Duke scored 20 points. In the next 18 minutes, Duke scored 53. So it kind of it got out of hand really quickly, and it, Clemson just doesn't have guys they can bring in. I mean, they're very centered on three guys and once Thomas went out it was really helping them slow the game down to go inside to him and Duke was running half court they I think Duke they didn't score on a possession lasting more than 10 seconds 
until about five minutes left in the first half, which is just nuts. But, I mean, once it gets going, they just start running, and then who cares how they score? They just score. I mean, the key is obviously going to be when they play teams that have um, the depth or the experience and or the experience and or just the basic – I just – just everything able to slow Duke down for more than just a period of time, which is obviously easier said than done. So I think that's yeah. really, I mean, it just got out. Of, I, th- I think um, Brownell, he said basically Clemson just, they couldn't, they just couldn't keep kind of competing at a certain point in the second yeah. half. It just got out of hand. And that's the nature of college basketball. I mean, there just aren't that many teams that have that many weapons that have that level of elite talent. It's not the NBA where you have a much greater level of talent parity out there. Um, that's what's going to happen. So, you know, if we think about this game in the arc of the season where we talk about is Duke going to be able to win in lower possession environments, um, what do we learn out of this game? Um, you know, you talk about slowing them down, and, yeah, they were able to slow Clemson down. Now, I want to put in one little – Let's tap the brakes on that a little bit because, yes, Clemson is a slow-paced team. They average 68.5 possessions. They're 220th uh, – excuse me, uh, yeah, 220th in the country. Um, so a very slow team. But uh, they're kind of like, uh, I don't know, chicken or something. You, 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 you put a uh, flavor with it, and it takes that flavor, right? Um, so uh, – Wouldn't that be uh, tofu? Uh, sorry, <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't eat tofu, so I have no idea. I don't either. That's just what uh, I've heard. You're welcome to have all the opinions about tofu you like. Um, but uh, this podcast, we talk about meat. Okay. Uh, so, um, <laughs> uh, meat, that is. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, so, you know, they just played Lipscomb, and Lipscomb was able to speed them. But the thing with Clemson is they turn the ball over so much, that's what started ramping up those possessions. So, you know, we have to tap the brakes a little bit on that. Um, so, you know, Duke was able to turn them over 19 turnovers in that game, and that that speeds it up. But, you know, you're starting to see, you know, there's a slow-paced team. So, yeah, there's a little bit of something there um, that that's happening uh, with that defense. So you're starting to see that. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk about, you know, when we talk about this run is Duke starts off slow, and they've done that a decent amount this season. They haven't necessarily been a team that's been great out of the gate. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, uh, you know, Duke will just tend to wear teams down. The level of defense that they play and the speed at which they play the game makes it very hard uh, for teams to keep up. And then there's just so much pressure on every possession because Duke is going to turn you over and they're going to turn that into buckets because your transition offense is so good. Um, so that's part of it. And that just, you know, picks up, you know, it's easy to be pretty good for the first five minutes. You can do it for 10 minutes, maybe for 20. It's very hard to do that over 30 or 40. The other thing that happened in these two games was that when Duke was struggling early on, you know, Cam Reddish is really having a tough time out there. So you go away from Cam Reddish, um, and you go to uh, Jack White. So in that Clemson game, you know, Reddish commits a couple of turnovers. He comes out very first possession. Jack White comes in and hits, um, you know, so it, it changes the complexion of the offense where it starts getting more efficient right now while Reddish is, is figuring it out. So, um, you know, I think that has something to do with it, uh, you know, as well, in addition to the, the talent gaps. Yeah, yeah, and I was going to talk more about that with Jack White, just kind of he does whatever needs to be done. Um well, when I focus on him, but yeah, he hit the first half threes when Duke was really struggling to get any points on the board outside of transition, it was just huge. And yeah, I mean, it just shows the way he can impact a game, did it a totally different way against Wake. And I, I will say that recently, especially when they've been facing kind of different types of opponent strategies against them you're absolutely right Duke has come out slower and it does take them a while to adjust early on in the season though 
they were just murdering teams right out of the gate. And I believe that Gonzaga was actually the first game, and that was like game number eight or something, where they didn't just run a team off the court immediately. So, yeah, as they face different and better teams, you're absolutely right. It's going to take some adjusting each time. So, yeah, yeah it's been slow out of the gate recently. It'd be interesting to see, too, go back and look at what was Cam. You know, Cam was playing much better basketball early in the year, you know, because you think about that Clemson game. It's offensive rating in that Clemson game, I think, was 33. You know, Jack White was a 198, so that's a heck of a of a delta there. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see, you know, what is the impact, um, you know, of, of, of Cam Reddish being engaged um, and playing well, you know, against the early runs to lead to those early runs, you know, versus Jack White coming in. Like what, what's the impact, you know, just of having that reliable score because, you know, he struggled so much the last two games at all those turnovers early on really, you know, in the shot, you know, we'll move on to the Wake Forest game here and, you know, he had a couple of three pointers where he actually hit the backboard, which you just don't see from a three point shooter that well, that good. So, um, you know, so it, it would be interesting to, to go back and look and see, you know, what impact did that have. But it certainly makes the offense a lot more efficient and a little bit less uh, turnover prone right now when they're, when they're bringing Jack off the bench. Yeah, and I also think uh, Trey, I mean, still not totally running the offense, but he did initiate more out of the half court, which is something I like to see and hopefully continues onward. And I thought there was some development in R.J. Barrett's game, especially on the pick and roll, which absolutely continued on to Wake. Wake, that was the first time really that Duke had faced, from what I saw, a uh, – a high major team zone for more than just an outlier possession or two until I checked the synergy uh, game stats today, which says Wake Forest only played zone on five possessions. And I am so unbelievably confused by that stat. And usually by the time we record, I've watched pretty much all the games over again, or at least um, parts of them. And I haven't with Wake. So maybe I was just seeing it wrong, but I talked to you. We both think Wake it wasn't every possession. They did start out, I believe, in man. But the mass majority of that game, at least from what I remember, I could be wrong, but it seemed like Duke was facing zone the mass majority of the game because I thought that was huge in terms of the way that Duke was forced to make decisions. It couldn't just be ISO, ISO, ISO. It was Zion constantly flashing to the free throw line and basically being... Duke's main and you could argue only option at least early on in order to get points on any sort of half court offense when it wasn't run through him it was a struggle so I thought it, he Zion his first half especially when Duke was struggling it's the best half he's played because of how important he was and the fact that Wake they came out and played extremely well and they on offense they were using a lot of high screens versus Duke Although Jalen Horde is the most talented player on Wake, everything runs through Brandon Childress. And whether he's shooting or passing, just everything is based on his playmaking. And early on, Duke was, was a little bit late in rotations. They just they hadn't dealt with that a lot, at least from what I remember, until or since Gonzaga. Gonzaga was the last team to use a lot of high screens versus Duke and were extremely successful. So was Wake early on. So I think the difference started to come when, I mean, it's tough to say it was as much X's and O's as it was just Trey. It was unbelievable how he amped up his game in terms of off-ball defense and just preventing, denying Brandon Childress from getting the ball. 
I mean, you, a team can't pick use a lot of pick and roll or just high screen action to set you up, at least with the player they want to have there, if they can't get the ball. And Trey was just glued to Brandon Childress and wasn't giving Wake any room to scream him off. He was fighting through everything. It's just the effort there. Trey Jones is something else, man, on defense because it wasn't just on ball. It was that denial, and that was everything. So I thought that was huge. I thought, I mean, Wake is a middle-of-the-pack pick-and-roll team at that. So I, I would say it's kind of it be, it's beneficial to Duke that they faced Clemson and Wake's offense as the first two games. If they had faced NC State, which is a lot more efficient, better uh, PNR team, I think it could have been uh, ugly at times on that end of the floor. But I thought Duke handled it well. It took some adjusting. I think if the Wake fans, I w- they were, uh, I think most of them were out. The students were still on break. I think that kind of hurt because it was an intense, you could even argue chippy game early on. And I think the fans could have made a big impact. Instead, there wasn't many people there. I mean, I know um, I, I don't want to steal your thunder, but uh, you you said to me that um, it, you could see like empty spots um, in the uh, stands, which just shouldn't happen, especially when they're playing Duke. So I think it would have helped them a lot to have more fans. Um, then let's see here. I think Jack White, he's not going to be able to shut guys down, like period. But I think versus Wake, he did a fantastic job when uh, guys were switched on to him. He can guard everyone one through five. I'm not saying shut guys down or do a fantastic job, but at least be adequate. And I think that's huge to just let Zion roam around and do his thing. Jack White was fantastic when uh, Wake would switch guys onto him. Um, I think uh, I had a question to you, which I forgot to ask before the podcast. He had five blocks and zero points. Has anybody? Mm-hmm. Do you think anybody's ever done that at Duke? Uh, that is uh, basically what you're describing there is Casey Sanders' career. So, you know, if you had said to me, uh, do you remember that game where Casey Sanders had five blocks and no points? I'd be like, yeah, probably. <laughs> like, which one? You know, that, that you just described Casey Sanders to me. So, look, I don't know if anyone's done it. I assume someone has done it before. Um, certainly there have been five block games, you know, and uh, – and, you know, somebody like a Billy King or someone like that who was not a proficient scorer but was a hell of a shot blocker, you know, probably has done that before. So it was an interesting stat line. But, yeah, I mean, you know, more importantly, it speaks to his versatility, you know, because he was blocking shots. Uh, you know, he had him in transition defense. Uh, he had on-ball blocks. He had uh, blocks from the weak side. So, you know, you really saw um, you saw the whole repertoire out of, uh, out of uh, you know, Australia's finest there. So, you know, it was it was it was good to see. And yeah, your your point about versatility is is is, is accurate. You know, I, I worry about him a little bit at the one and the five, um, but uh, you know he can he can step up and uh, and at least challenge um, there. And we've seen him learn a bit. You know, you go back to that Gonzaga game when he was playing against Hachimura uh, early in the uh, second half. He was getting posted up left and right. Um, and then I don't know if, you know, they just tired legs, it's a small gym or whatever, but he did such a better job down the stretch the last, you know, six, seven, eight minutes of that game defensively to where he was fronting him and, and, and being sure he was between him and the ball. Um, so, you know, we've seen him develop. Um, so, uh, you know, really impressive, uh, really impressive effort, you know, and it's nice to see the, the, that reflected in the stat line with the five, five blocks. I would say my two biggest takeaways, one kind of for the opponent and one for, a huge play or what a potentially huge play. Um, also, I did forget to say uh, Clemson game Zion's 360 dunk heard around the world, which I think, uh, I mean, ESPN on a game, which in co- national college basketball, I think there was like three game winners that night. They had Zion's dunk as the number one. 
And look, man, it's great. It's fun. And it's impress. It's beyond impressive. It's still, it's still a dunk. And like ESPN's just got to like, oh my God, they are in love with Zion. It's unbelievable. Well, they do it every year. I mean, they're like uh, Susan Sarandon and Bull Durham. You know, they pick someone different every year and that's who they ride. I remember when Ben Simmons was at LSU, you know, LSU would be going into a game and they're eight and 17. And it's, you know, it's like, uh, what's Ben Simmons doing? You know, I used to joke. It was like, you know, in the Simpsons episode where they created, uh, added the character to Itchy and Scratchy, which is the in cartoon cartoon uh, called Poochie. And one of Homer's suggestions, and Homer was the voice of Poochie, was that whenever Poochie isn't on the screen, people should be asking, where is Poochie? You know, and that's the way it felt with Ben Simmons. You know, whenever Ben Simmons was not on the screen in a college basketball game, announcers should be saying, where is Ben Simmons? So I think that's kind of what we have with Zion uh, now. You know, at least they haven't mentioned uh, his number of Instagram followers recently, because that was like a talking point every game. You know, and I made a tweet at one point that you know ESPN has now made more references to ESP to uh, you know Zion Williams Instagram followers than he has Instagram followers. So um, you know, it's that's ESPN. You know, it's take a take a storyline and then how can I just how can I just shove it into the ground? You know, you're not even you're not even going to run it into the ground with any great speed. It's how can I do this as slowly and deliberately and repetitively as possible. It's yeah, like it's like following it's, music publications but, on Twitter and thinking they're going to provide coverage for like all kinds of music, and then it's just nonstop Kanye stories, which most of them have nothing to do with music. So that's fun. All right. So the point about the opponent, I don't want to I don't want to harp on this because number one, I don't know what's going on in guys' heads. I don't want to predict. I don't want to assume anything. But Wake played a really like I said a really respectable first half. They were in it, they were playing hard, and then it like Duke came out with a lot more intensity in the second half. And yes, I will I will look to credit Duke whenever I can, but it was immediate that it just looked like Wake Forest, something was off. Like I I will say something that I normally wouldn't ever even think of saying. It didn't look like they were trying. I mean, it looked like they straight quit out of the second half. And yes, there's a million different ways which it's possible and probably even more likely that the credit should go to Duke. But at the same time, man, I don't know. Danny Manning, I've I've long questioned his coaching ability. He's a great recruiter, but it's just watching Wake Forest. They should constantly be better than, than they are in their sets. I, I don't want to harp – like I said, I don't want to harp on that too much. It was just – it was really weird because of just the difference – I don't know what happened in halftime. They just, they, they quit. I mean, that's what it looked like to me and nobody else but me. Yeah. I, you know, I think, uh, I think part of it gets back to the fact that it's just part of it is just the way that Duke plays. They have such a high floor because they're so good defensively that you got to keep up on every possession. And then when a couple of things go right for Duke, so your baseline is they're pretty good. And then when a couple of things go right in a row, that's where you get those runs. So, you know, coming out of the half, you had Duke hitting a couple of threes, which they hadn't done, right? That's when ZZ Reddick started his his action, right? And then you had a, a, a turnover that turns into a bucket. You know, you had just a couple of things that went right in a row. And then all of a sudden, because the defense is so good on the other end, that's when you, you turn it into a, um, you know, it was 15-7 or something. It was like an eight-point differential in the first four minutes uh, coming out of the break. And, uh, you know, I think that's just what you see with Duke is these runs happen because the floor is so good with the defense. And then, you know, for Wake Forest, look, that program is at a low ebb right now. Um, I would imagine Danny Manning may not be long for the ACC world. Um, it's a hard place to build a program. You know, it should really make you appreciate what Skip Prosser uh, did 
there when he was there. Um, you know, this is a program you think of all the talent they've come that's come through there and, you know, their highlights since, you know, Lynn Chapel and, and Billy Packer were there is, uh, you know, making the Elite Eight and losing at Kentucky in uh, 96 when Kentucky, I think it was 96 when Kentucky won the title. Um, you know, you have a senior Tim Duncan, you can't get out of the, what are they losing to the second round, you know, his, his senior year. Um, so, you know, it's a tough place and that program's at a low ebb. So yeah, I think, you know, the last 15 minutes of that game, it, it may very well have been wake, you know, just saying, well, things aren't going right and there's another day and we're seven and six and, you know, it just, it happens sometimes, man, you're playing a game and it's just, it gets away from you and, uh, it takes a lot to be a competitor and, uh, and always answer the bell when, you know, you're just getting kicked in the teeth. Well, like. well, Ray, you know what they say? Anthony Tucci is not walking through that door. So, hey, yeah. how about that? Back in Adam's day, how about that? <laughs> you think you own the back in the day. All right, so the, the quick thing for Duke, and I'll, I'll go a little bit more, more into this uh, later with players, but, I mean, at the end of the first half, Duke had the last possession. That is the time when it seems like R.J. Barrett, he ISOs every single time. No, not this time. So, Trey... He was the initiator. And this was after R.J. Barrett had been doing a much better job of playmaking but uh, for others. But Trey, he initiated the offense. He, he drove into the lane, and he actually lost control of the ball. Looked like he was going to lose it out of bounds. Instead, he gathered it, and underneath the basket, kicked it, kicked it out up top to Cam Reddish, right in the shooting pocket. Unbelievable. Cam Reddish, who's been struggling, doesn't even begin to cover it on both ends. Right in the shooting pocket, caught it, drained it as the first half ends. I mean, three points, and it didn't change everything, but you could argue that's as big a play as any just because of the fact of who was running that play, who was initiating that play, and then Cam Reddish. If anyone could have used a confidence boost more, I don't know who it could have been. Cam, that was just so big for him. So I thought that was a huge play from the wake game, from, in my opinion. Yeah, so Trey got the primary and the secondary assist on that one. So it was, uh, it was like a power play goal. Nice. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was. I mean, he caught it in rhythm. He shot it up. It looked like the, you know, uh, the Texas Tech 3. Now, granted, the Texas Tech 3 was a you know, right corner um, 3. But, you know, just catching it in rhythm, open, you know, drill it. And that's, that's what he needs to do. You know, I think... With Cam, it's all it's all mental. But yeah, uh, you know Trey, uh, you know making that play, and then he had a couple of you know plays that game where he was, uh, you know, maybe not uh, entirely in charge of the offense, but you know he had a couple of plays where he he created very nicely. You know that was to me. So the offense from the Wake Forest game, if you look at it statistically, I think their raw offensive rating in that game was a one sixteen or so, um, which is you know for Duke actually one of their lower numbers uh, of the year. Um, but I actually thought it was uh, pretty good because, again, the, the, the narrative arc of the season is not going to be, you know, what's your, your offensive efficiency number per se because that's so inflated by what they do in transition. So this game, Duke didn't have a lot of transition. I think they – I don't know if you have the stats in front of me. I want to say it was 12 points in transition. They were certainly um, not running as much as they did. They only forced seven steals. That's the fewest number since Gonzaga. Uh, so it was not a get-out-and-run kind of game for Duke. They had 14 um, half break points. So there you go. So 14. So for Duke, that's a pretty low number. I would imagine, you know, that is, you know, on the lower end of, of what they've done this year. 
Um, but what we were able to see was, you know, just some different ways to run the offense. RJ, to your point, is really doing a great job facilitating. These last two games, he's really been good at that. You know, Trey just breaks down a defense. He is, uh, you know, giving him another way to attack. There were so many two-man games that Trey ran with people. We saw that high-low with uh, Zion and uh, RJ Barrett, um, which is so much nice two-way play out there. I think the first half, Duke had 17 field goals, and 13 of them were assisted. Um, it was just really nice to see just some different ways. Even in the first half, they dumped the ball down to Marquise Bolden. He turned around and scores out of the post. Um, they fed the ball down to Zion. He turned around and scored out of the post. So, you know, we talk about, you know, again, the arc of the season. Is Duke going to be able to win in the half court? How are they going to do that? They need to, you know, diversify their offense. need not be so ISO heavy. And I think we saw a lot of that um, against Wake Forest. Now, will it be good enough? You know, if you're if you're Duke, you're looking at that, you know, Florida State game in a place where they always play terribly. And then you're looking at the Virginia game a week and a couple of days um, down the road. So will it be good enough for those two? Um, we'll see. But, you know, again, for the for the for what you wanted to see, um, you know, you checked a lot of those boxes. Yeah. And um, I do think the I mean, even the, even though synergy tracked it as not zone. I think Duke was really helped by the zone because it gave them kind of um, gaps to flash into, to cut to, and there was direct passes. You knew where a guy was going. It's obvious they've been coached well against the zone. I mean, especially um, Barrett. I mean, his passes were on point. He just, he was anticipating really well. Just really fantastic. And he's improving on, uh, I actually tweeted out a video of one time where, um, he hit Bolden on a pick and roll, like a legit pick and roll. And that's something yeah. Bear struggled with. I mean, it's the same thing. Guys are going to improve and develop. I mean, it's almost like I remember Jason Tatum, his catch and shoot. He was just awful at the start. And then he got a little better, a little better. And by the end of the year, he was fantastic. And everyone saw him with the Celtics and was like, we didn't think he was that good. His stats aren't great catch and shoot. I mean, yeah, if you look, if you include those early on, but he improved as the year went on. So it's just great players. They're going to get better. So, I mean, every every player, hopefully, will get better. But you can already see the development in R.J. Barrett's game, which is great to see. Yeah, and I think this is actually going to be – I think this will, Duke will be a pretty good team against the zone as it goes on. Yeah, they don't have great shooters, but because they have two guys that can break you down at the free throw line right in the heart of that defense – um, you know, make good decisions, make quick decisions. I think they're actually going to be fairly effective against zone um, as the season wears on. And of course, you get Syracuse coming up on the on the schedule. You know, even sooner than UVA. So you know, we'll get to see uh, we'll get to see that in action uh, against uh, Jim Beheim's team. Okay, Zion Williamson, Gush Fest 2019. Zion Williamson, his two games, 22 minutes against Clemson, only nine in the first half, uh, some foul trouble. But 25 points, 9 of 11 um, shooting, 1 of 3 from deep. So the only two shots he missed were from deep. 6 of 9 free throws, 10 rebounds, 2 on the offensive end, no assists. Very selfish. Uh, Two steals, one turnover, one personal foul, and a 360 dunk. Wake Forest, 32 minutes, 30 points, 13 of 16 um, shooting, 3 of 4 from deep, 1 of 1 from the line, 10 rebounds, 3 offensive, 5 assists, 4 steals, 1 block, four turnovers, two personal fouls, and just unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable. So um, against Wake, it, uh, per ESPN Stats and Info, he became the second Division One player in the last 20 years uh, to post 30, 10, 
five, four, and 80% shooting from the field. Do you know who the other player is, Ray? You have already mentioned him on the <laughs> podcast. I'm sorry. So the criteria is 30, 10, and 5. 30, 10, 5, 4, and 80% shooting. You've already mentioned him. How many non-Duke players have you mentioned? Uh, boy. I, I'm not uh, trying to I, trick you. I'm I hoping no you. Oh, okay, it's Ben, it's ben Duncan. Simmons. Ben Simmons. Tim Duncan. Ben Simmons. <laughs> Oh, Tim sure. Duncan. <laughs> no. Um, what was wrong about Tim? So you said 30, he certainly had 30 point games. He certainly shot 80%. Tim, Tim Duncan wouldn't have been in the last 20 years. Would it? Uh, no, Wait. I guess you're right. So Tim, Duncan, Tim Duncan's senior year was 1997. So, you know, some of us have just gotten older, uh, older, uh, older than faster, but I, I would imagine that seems like a stat line that, uh, Duncan would have put up at some point. Yeah, you're probably right. But, uh, yeah. All right. So yeah, Ben Simmons only is the only other player to put up that line he's the first duke freshman with 30 10 5 he is on pace to set the all-time college single season box plus minus record which is a stat that basically shows how much he impacts the game in every facet on both ends which is uh really impressive um it's too it's just two crazy performances especially against wake forest when duke needed him the most against clemson it was especially on the defensive end, even though the offensive stats were unreal. Again, I mean, you can just – Duke is a totally different team on defense when Zion's not in there because they, yeah. he's, he's just – as you said early in the season, he he's kind of the band-aid that covers up a lot of potential issues. And now it's not issues much. He just makes them better. It's not that stuff could go wrong without him. He just – instead of it being just kind of sedentary and just – it's almost like a prevent defense. Now Duke is really attacking on defense, getting causing the turnovers, and that's and t- turning defense into offense and even running off opponent misses, even makes sometimes. So yeah. I mean that's how he impacted mostly against Clemson, despite his monster stat line on offense. Wake, I thought that was just unbelievable with the way he played against the zone or what I saw as the zone. So I mean it was just unbelievable it's just an unbelievable two games for zion williamson and uh yeah this is still kind of these were the last two of what you could could arguably call be called duke's soft portion of their schedule i mean even though i mean their first road game still it was against wake without the students there so i don't know how much stock to put into that but just an unbelievable job by zion in the first two in his first two acc games yeah, and, you know, and I think we're actually shortchanging him a little bit on that Wake Forest uh, game, too. So he went 13 for 16 from the floor. Two of those were missed dunks. <laughs> and uh, and then the third one was a missed three-pointer. So, you know, you figure that the missed dunks are kind of, you know, just a little bit of fluky variance. Um, and, then, and then one was just clanging a three-pointer. So, you know, on uh, – you know, you could very easily see a way that he's 15 of 16. And if he'd gone 15 of 16 uh, at that point, he would have tied the Duke uh, freshman record for points in a game, which is 34 held by uh, J.J. Redick and uh, and Marvin Bagley. Um, so, you know, that's how close he was to, to having, you know, an even more impressive uh, stat line. But one other thing that's nice about what he's done offensively, too, is one for one from the free throw line in that game. Over the last few games, he's become a very good free throw shooter so he's one for one against wake forest six for nine against clemson so you know left three out there but before that nine for ten four for five you know so we're starting to see you know he's two for two against Hartford. he's picking up against at the free throw line too which for a guy that draws as many fouls as he does um is is uh is important so you know i think we've really seen you know i said it earlier i i feel like these last two games have been the game where this really became 
uh, Zion's team where it was clear, you know, coming into the game that the game plan was let's get buckets for Zion, you know, let's him, let's let Zion create. And, uh, and I think that's great for Duke. Now they're going to have to adjust eventually, uh, you know, teams are, are, you know, going to get impact lane even more. They're going to uh, be sure they get those doubles over quickly. Wake Forest, when they doubled them, they were a little bit slow a lot. Um, so, you know, they're going to have to, uh, Duke's going to have to adjust to that, but that's great for this team. Cause this is a bunch of creators and, and, and finishers on this team. You know, you got slashers, you got guys who get to the rim. So you stop Zion, then you have RJ slashing, you know, you have Cam Reddish slashing, you have, you know, uh, Trey hunting on the three point line. I think he'll be a, a sufficient three point shooter out there with space. So, you know, I think it's, uh, just going to continue to develop the, uh, the ceiling of this team's offense. Yeah, I mean, most of Zion's damage against Clemson um, on offense did come in transition. So, But, again, versus Wake, that's when, again, from what I saw, it was against zone. I think that's why the five assists, that's why you saw those assist numbers go up, because he was playmaking, and with Duke against the zone, it just it gives them a lot more opportunity to think the game through instead of just kind of, Hey, get the ball, shoot, ISO, whatever. I just shoot on the first pass. And now it was get to a spot, look for whoever's flashing. And yeah, I think Wake did a terrible job of really, I mean, they would give Zion a lot of space when he flashed to the free throw line. But at the same time, I mean, once he gets going, that's tough to stop. So he knew what he was going to do. He would anticipate it, but he wouldn't predetermine too much. There's a big difference. And he's such a smart player. I mean, that's the thing. He really thinks the game through. I mean, even his responses after the game against Texas Tech at uh, Madison Square Garden, that's the first time I think, I mean, he always does short interviews after games, but there was a lot of NBA guys there, NBA reporters, who asked him more specific questions and just he went a lot more in depth into his process where he talked about um, how he idolized uh, three or not idolized, but tried to model his game after three players growing up. It was uh, Michael Jordan because of how he was dominated on both ends. It was uh, Larry Bird, who may not have been the most athletic guy, but he thought the game through and he was just he always played hard. And then there was Magic Johnson, who just made other guys better. And. Zion, you can see that type of game. He just, I don't know. I mean, it's very interesting because of how little evidence there is of guys really having a lot of personality in college. Even a guy like Shaq, who just turned into a goofball, and I don't mean that in a bad way at all. Um, just kind of, he, he uh, I mean, he was very intense and serious in games and everything, but he, he, had the, he liked to have fun off the court in the NBA. You look at him at LSU. I mean, I, I know that was a long time ago. Most people don't remember if they were even alive. He was very serious. I mean, he just, everything was business. And that's how you see it with most of these guys in college. So I don't know. I mean, Zion, he's just, he's saying everything correctly. Everything you could want a guy to say, every way you could want a guy to act, he's doing it. And it's just, I know that it's going to be, it's going to be really entertaining to hear the uh, quote-unquote concerns from uh, anonymous sources uh, once the draft gets closer about Zion. It's going to be his weight. It's going to be his outside shooting. And, yeah, his outside shooting, I, I mean, it's he's got to work on that. I mean, it's a, it's a damn near knuckleball at this point. He made three or four against Wake. I wouldn't depend on that or count on it. Um, it's just it's great when it happens. Yeah, if he could make that consistently, it's done. But I wouldn't count on that, or at least not this season. 
Um, so I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see Zion's personality develop because it's really, I mean, it's, he's, he's like, he has an A plus in just saying everything that will just make everyone not just keep gushing, but gush even further. I mean, it's like, he's basically a pro ESPN can just stick him on anything at this point. He's, he's basically just the perfect guy, everything he says, but he thinks the game. It's not, he's not just spouting cliches. When he said the first thing, his first interview after a Duke game, even if it wasn't official um, in Canada was he, he was just harping on defense and how the Duke team needs to talk. If they don't talk, they're not going to do well this season. Bottom line, they will only be as good as their defense, and their defense will only be as good as they communicate. And that, man, you want to make someone gush, you want to make me gush, that's how you do it. Uh, it. That was just something I love to hear. The other thing that made me gush is this quote. I kind of hate being classified as a dunker. Coach, uh, Coach wouldn't have recruited me if I was just a dunker. But I guess people on the outside don't understand that. I can't play to impress other people. I'm playing to get better for myself and my teammates and hopefully make a run for the national championship. The making a run for a national championship, yeah, I mean, that's what every player kind of adds at the end. But I think the big thing to me was just how, yeah, he knows how amazing he is. He knows that's what gets people off, but it's it's his game and the way he plays non-dunky-wise. That's what's most impressed me. Um, when I watch him. And uh, uh, more of his quotes after the Texas Tech game at MSG, I'd encourage people to check out um, a reporter named Michael Soto. I think it's uh, Mike K. Soto. He covers the NBA for The Athletic. Um, It's on his Twitter feed from, I believe, December 20th. So uh, Zion makes a lot of very interesting uh, quotes there, so I'd encourage that to check it out. So that was a long thing I will add. One more thing, I want to give you props because although you say that you did hear it from, it might have been Corey Alexander, I saw, um, I think it was on Twitter, Rex Chapman, he made the Rodney Rogers comparison um, saying that Rodney was kind of the first Zion. Everything doesn't match up perfectly, but uh, he was like, before um, Zion, there was Rodney. You've been saying that uh, since preseason. And then uh, Bomani Jones he, uh, he kind of expounded on that really well. He, he was saying Rodney was hurt in the NBA because there was, they, they, players were boxed in to specific positions more rather than now where it's kind of positionless basketball. So I think Zion has a little more freedom where Rodney might have been labeled as a tweener, which was seen as a negative then, even though it should have been a positive. The other thing that I think uh, – this kind of goes either way, but you were saying early on that uh, Zion's going to lead the lead the college game in. I think you said like uh, assumed or premeditated yeah. charge car, uh, charge calls. Yeah. And Coach K after the um, after the uh, Texas Tech game, or no, I think he actually said this after the Wake game, but it was kind of specifically about Texas Tech. Um, I hope they learn how to officiate him because when he makes a spin at full court, a kid can't take a charge unless it's a secondary defender because it's a unique move. Only a gifted athlete can make it at that level. He has a number of wow moments. So it was, he said that after Wake, based on the play he was saying, I would have to assume he's talking about Texas Tech. Um, I agree, that was a terrible call. I said it at the time. I don't think there's been too many kind of assumed or premeditated charge calls. I think there might be more in the future. 
um, as the games get more intense. And when that happens, if it happens, it's going to be a big deal. So I would say those two things you had already talked about. So I want to uh, give you a little golf clap for uh, for that. I am worried about lots of things. If everyone just agreed with me, we'd all... I disagree. So that's, uh, well, that's something to work on for the next <laughs> podcast. But yeah, you know, Rodney, I, you know, I said that last year when he was in high school. And you know, Rodney Rogers, um, you know, was just an insanely special talent. He was a Durham kid. He went to Hillside. You know, he he was, uh, you know, he just, that, that combination of power and speed, you know, he's not quite as big as I am, but this is, you know, 1991, 1992, 1993. So it's a little bit of a different era in basketball, um, you know, and uh, it was just like nothing you'd ever seen before. Um, and, you know, he's left-handed too. And it just, it just, it, it was, you know, I always wanted to Rodney Rogers. He was the kind of guy I always wanted at Duke. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's a great pleasure to, uh, to have somebody like that. And frankly, is maybe a little bit more advanced at this point, but you know, again, it's a different, it's a different game and it's really important to remember, you know, we sort of forget about Rodney a little bit because Wake Forest, you know, in the mid nineties when Duke was uh, down and uh, you know, they won back to back ACC titles and that was the Randolph Childress and then Tim Duncan, but like Rodney Rogers was such a special player, 1991 and an ACC that has Grant Hill in it as a freshman it's Rodney Rogers that wins freshman of the year. 1993, you know, and in ACC, you think about it just from a Duke perspective, that's Bobby Hurley senior. He sets the NCAA record for all-time assist, has his best um, season. You know, he averages, uh, you know, Hurley probably averaged 20 a game that year. Uh, he was tremendous. Um, you know, you think about Carolina won the national championship that year. George Lynch, the great captain uh, of that team. Eric Montross. You know, all these guys who were playing in the ACC at that time, and those guys weren't ACC player of the year. It was Rodney Rogers. He was just that special of a player. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, for those of us who are really ACC first and foremost, he's uh, he's a guy who has a special place uh, in the Pantheon. I think, you know, Zion's going to be sort of like, yeah, I think Zion may go down as, you know, maybe the most beloved Duke player, you know, of the K era. Um, you know, he's the kind of guy that I think people will actually uh, – actually root for um so you know i think that's gonna that's gonna work out well for him and then yeah the anticipated charges that's just the you know especially when you get to the nta tournament and all the pressures on the refs uh, uh you know you may see more of that where they just assume you know because it's the thing that's most impressive about him you know from a physical standpoint it's not even the, the size and the speed and the leaping ability it's the agility like the way he can just stop on a dime you know he's built like a defensive tackle or or, you know, even a bigger version of a defensive tackle, and he, he plays like a running back. I mean, it's unbelievable. His handles in traffic, he just does things that, that you shouldn't be able to do, and you just you, you start, you know, throwing throwing up the charge sign because there's just no way someone's going to stop, and yet he does. And, you know, once, once you're into the call, you're into the call. So, you know, I think we'll, we'll see a few more of those, um, but hopefully it's not, uh, you know, at a pivotal time for Duke. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, like I said, that that, that... – they had done now with the soft portion of their schedule. So it's going to be very interesting to see how not just Zion, but everyone reacts to as the level of competition steps up. So going through the rest of the guys real quick, I mean, Trey and Jack continue to be huge difference makers on defense, which allows Zion to make the plays and get the highlights, but they yeah. lock him down. I think, you know, I mean, honestly, do, do we not even talk enough about Zion's defense? Everybody talks about how great Trey is, and, you know, Mike Shefsky's talking about his player of the year. Is he even the best defensive player on this team? Is Zion the best defensive player on this team? I mean, he is such a difference maker when he's in there. 
you know, with the, the, the defensive skill set he brings. You know, he blocks shots, he rebounds. Um, you know, if you think about a component of, of, of defense being, you know, clearing the contested board off and getting it and getting the team off the other way, you know, he does that tremendously well. Uh, he, he's so engaged, you know, he plays the game at such a high level. You know, to, to me, the, the play that will stand out to me the most in that Wake Forest game um, was at the very end, you know, Duke's up 23, probably the last minute he plays. There's a loose ball that's uh, created. Zion goes diving for that loose ball 90 feet from the rim to kickstart a fast break the other way, you know, up 23. That level of defensive awareness, intensity, you know, and just overall competition is, is, is what makes him so great. So, you know, I just wonder, you know, do we not talk enough about, you know, Zion's defense? He's really, really good defensively. Well, I did record a podcast with somebody, it may have been you, a week ago, or a couple of days ago, I don't even know, but where, yeah, I think we, I think we went over uh, Zion's defense really well, and uh, I, I was talking about how I didn't want to make it into a versus or who's better, but I was saying, like, who is more impactful on defense, or Trey or Zion, because they both are so big. You, you said that it's kind of more impactful to have a point guard who uh, stops the ball and prevents the play from happening. I, I mean, I can see both um, arguments. If somebody wants to argue Zion, if somebody wants to argue Trey, Zion's going to get more of the highlight plays. So I think that's what's going to kind of convince those who are looking at the surface level stuff. He's going to be able to get the steals and finish the plays and do all the crazy highlights. But Trey, I mean, if, I mean, it's the same thing I was talking about with Brandon Childress. If the, if the playmaker on the other team can't get the ball, he can't make plays. So that's not going to show up in the highlights. Sure. So, but the, so the question, I guess, because it's, it's almost like uh, if you have a, you know, it's a, think about position value and shortstop, you could have the best, you know, defensive second baseman, uh, you know, he could be Bill Mazeroski or whoever, you know, the universally regarded best defensive second baseman of all time is Ryan Sandberg. I don't know. Uh, you know, how, what's the value of that versus a pretty good shortstop? Like the shortstop's the most important defensive position. Point guard is the most important position. And that's not to take anything away from Trey. Like he's been phenomenal, um, you know, and, uh, and it's been a huge part of that defense. But, you know, I think with, uh, with Zion, if you're just talking about a pure, you know, pure, defensive performance relative to your position you know like same thing like football like think about how important a left tackle is but if you're quarterback you know you'd rather have you know a great quarterback and a mediocre left tackle than the other way around right something about position so i think the position thing certainly favors trey you know if i have to have a good defensive player i want it at the point um but anyway i just think uh you know maybe outside of this podcast zion doesn't get enough credit for uh for what he's doing defensively yeah, I mean, it's almost like 2015, he's a next-level Incredible Hulk version of, of uh, roaming Justice Winslow on defense. So, I mean, just in terms of the impact he makes uh, off the ball in the passing yeah. lanes. Um, yeah. and, and just with uh, weak side blocks um, or help blocks. So I, I think that's huge. Um, uh, Jack White, I was talking about how he can not shut guys down, but you can trust him at least to slow everyone down, no matter who he's guarding. Um, RJ's development as a playmaker. I think that's been really big. I want to see yep. it against more man. Cause I think still the majority of teams are going to play man against Duke. And when they start sinking off down low, I think that's going to be interesting because I mean, he did have a lot more 
specific kind of plays. You make this play at this time against the zone. So against man, that's when you have to really be creative. And he and he's improved on that. Like I said, the pick and roll. So I, th- I think he's gotten a lot better um, there. Um, I do want to take a couple seconds and uh, talk about uh, we, we really haven't. We, we've given um, Zion and Trey's defense the time it deserves. Javin Deloria and Bolden, I think Kay, deserve, first of all, deserves a lot of credit for the way he's using them and for the for when he puts each one in. I mean, the obvious mistake was against Gonzaga leaving um, Bolden in too long. Since then, it seems like he's made great decisions. Again, competition level, we'll see. But I think Javin's been fantastic on defense. I was starting to say... Um, I think two podcasts ago, how he's still bringing the energy, but it's not herky-jerky, and he's not he's not just jumping all around and falling for uh, shot fakes and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. His foul rate's gone down, and Bolden, when, when he's in there, he's very dependable, and he's going to give max effort. He was, I mean, talk about prevent denial defense. Jalen Horde is an NBA player. He wasn't even getting the ball. Bolden was being really physical against him, came up a couple huge blocks, and he scored double-digit points. I know some of them have come in garbage time, but the Duke is not afraid to go down low to Bolden and try to develop at least a hint of a post game, which is something where I don't know. I, I mean, I do know that nobody, or not nobody, very few expected that who are were the, are the typical um, people who just overreacted to Bolden in Canada. Because once everyone saw Bolden can, it's just, oh, he's a, he's a bust. Yeah. He's been fantastic. So has Javin. I mean, Javin, he, he only shoots when uh, when he, he's right there and when he dunks. So I don't think he's missed in about seven years. He hasn't missed a shot since Stetson locked him up for a four for six performance on, I think, December 1st. And he's hit his last, I believe it's 18 in a row. But that's a good example of what he's doing. He's Everything is coming to him. The game speed is like normal now. You know, he doesn't have all that twitchiness back there. And, you know, because before uh, of those 18 dunks, mostly dunks that he's hit, like he would have caught the ball and traveled on a couple of them. You know, we've seen him do that several times. You remember when he's a freshman, he had the ball on the breakaway, got away from him, bounced on the floor, went in the rim. Like he's just, you know, he's all over the place. So he's definitely been a little more disciplined. I thought he was struggling a little bit to start the Wake Forest game. Um, he was getting, he was giving up the baseline a little too much. Uh, and then, you know, that's when uh, Kay went to Bolden. That's, you know, to your point, that's what Kay has really done a nice job with those guys, knowing when each one fits, even with the Gonzaga game. I don't blame him that much. I think Bolden got a little too much uh, heat in that game when you have bigs that can step out and shoot. You know, and you have a you have a perimeter defense that was letting everybody by. You know, do you really want to have your five going that close out and you know uh, pressing on a three point shooter, or do you want to say, hey, if your if your big's going to hit a three, you know, I'll take that over you know an easy drive to the rim. So, but I think Kay's been really good about that in games that it makes sense for you know where it makes sense to have Bolden. He's he's gotten them in there, and Delaria he's gotten them in there, and that rotation has just worked really well. And I, I'm a big Bolden fan. You know, I it wouldn't bother me if if Bolden started most games, I think he's good enough to do that. And he, he's such a great rim protector uh, there, but you know, the, the luxury for Duke has been that they haven't absolutely needed that, you know, last year's team uh, playing man would have absolutely needed that. So you really wouldn't have been able to work Delaria in as much, but this team doesn't. So you can work in Delaria, you can switch one through five and you make teams prepare for a lot more. You know, you can't just have that one game plan. It's not going to be like the, you know, the game uh, 
against Miami back in, uh, was it uh, 2013? We're like, yeah, we know exactly what Duke's going to do, and we're just going to pick and roll him to death. That's all we're going to do. We're going to get to the rim. That was probably 2014, actually. Uh, 2013 was a different team for Miami, but, um, you know, so you don't have that. So, yeah, he, he's, done a, he's done a really good job. It's been a really nice uh, coaching job. You know, we don't – you know, Mike Krzyzewski, the funny thing about, uh, you know, coaching, uh, it's always relative to – expectations so like Mike Krzyzewski never wins coach of the year awards anymore you know like uh random coaches win coach of the year but you know Mike Krzyzewski because you expect so much of him it just it, you know he doesn't get a lot of credit but he's really done a nice job uh this year in, in managing this team and you can see him tinkering you know you can see what he's what he's trying to do in terms of the offense in terms of the substitution patterns you know the way he's working with reddish versus white um it's really been a nice job um you know, by the uh, five-time national champ. Yeah, um, Javins, he, he, I, I think the uh, Miami game was 15. Um, but uh, it, it might have been, I mean, there was a couple of years Miami just worked him. Um, Javins, 9 of 9 transition, 19 of 23 in the half half court. But he's actually the only, the only Duke player by large margin who's shooting better in zone than against man. He's 5 of 6 in zone, 14 of 17 in man. Either way, he's just finishing <laughs> plays. And because, and that just goes to show that, uh, I mean, guys are able to find those spots where Javin can just kind of – I mean, it's like in football, receiver can just sit down in the uh, gap in the zone and the, the quarterback just has to find him. They're going to be there. So Javins, he's just – hey, I'm there when you need me. So he's, he's finishing plays there. All right, so um, last player – or, okay, before Cam, Alex O'Connell, actually, I, I made a fantastic prediction. I, I thought with the wake uh, garbage time, I said O'Connell's going to get double-digit points. He finished, He was really close. He finished 10 short. So it was just a, a little bit off. But uh, is it – would you say it's important? I'm not going to use the word worried. I'm not, it's not wor- a, a worry. Do you think it would help or Duke should – get him in at times to run plays for him or it's just when he's going you think he's the type of guy he's going to stay ready when necessary i've been it's been a little disappointing this year frankly with o'connell he's a guy who came into the year with a lot of uh, high hopes for you know i've always liked him as a player one he's a very good three-point shooter uh notwithstanding his current uh slump you know i don't know what he's what's he shooting from three-point you know now it's not it's not as good of a, it's not as good as he is a shooter, um, you know. So it's been a little, uh, it's been a little disappointing. So he's shooting 35% from three, which is way below, you know, his his true talent level, particularly in the types of shots that he's getting. You know, he's played a lot of garbage time minutes, um, you know, so he's had some open looks. So it's been a little disappointing, but yeah, I think it is important that they get him because they are going to need uh, uh, to to be able to shoot from deep. Um, I think he's also a player. He keeps the ball moving. You know, he's very good about that. Um, his turnover rate is way too high this year. I don't know exactly what's going on. It just hasn't come together for him this year, and it's really been disappointing because I think he could be a vital player. I think he has, you know, coming into the year, I said he has the offensive chops to play even with this first team, you know. To me, you could put him in for Reddish, and you could have um, a lot of the same uh, impact is, is what I thought. Um, but it just it hasn't been that way, that both of those guys have been struggling. And, uh, you know, maybe part of it is just, too, the way the Duke offense is being run. We talk about Cam Reddish doesn't really have a role on this team. It's not as clear to find what is his role. So if you're just subbing in O'Connell, you kind of have the same uh, issue there. So it's been, a, it's, been a little, uh, it's been a little disappointing, but I think Duke does need to have him because there are going to be games where they're going to need to be able to hit those contested threes. And, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, again, this is, a, this is a microscopic sample size. But uh, the catch and shoot, um, O'Connell, when he's unguarded, he is uh, he's 6 of 12 on catch and shoots, which is in the 83rd percentile. Excellent. Yeah. Um, uh, 1.5 points per possession. When he's guarded, he's 2 of 12, 0.5 points per possession in the 6th percentile, number 6. So... Yeah, I mean, as you said, they're going to have to hit some of those guard shots. So hopefully he can get it going at some point. I think, uh, I mean, it just helps to get into a rhythm when you're just thrown in for a period of time. You, you just never know. All right, and now let's get to Reddish. You made the point where uh, I did disagree. I wanted to get you to go a little more in-depth into what you mean, where he's having a tough time with the role, and I used... Um, Trevon DeVal, Frank Jackson, Derek Thornton as examples, which is obviously different because they're point guards. They expected to come in and be a point guard. Frank Jackson was a combo guard who was trying to become, and he really wasn't given much of an opportunity to, to be a point guard. The other two were expected to be point guards. Didn't quite work out that way. So, yeah, I will say my comparison is going to be very different because Reddish He's a different type of player. But in terms of just not quite being sure of the role, can you uh, just uh, add on a, a little bit about uh, how you feel about that? I mean, what should Reddish be doing? Like, what is his role in, in this offense? They don't really run plays for him. You know, they don't uh, run a lot of stuff where he's spotting up. Um, you know, you, like, it's clear what Zion's skill set is and what his role is. You know, RJ's the lead dog. It's clear what Trey is doing. Um you know, it's clear whoever's playing at the five exactly what their job is out there on the floor. But, like, what is the job of Reddish? Should he be playing off these guys? Should he be a slasher? Should he be, you know, hunting at the three-point line? Like, what exactly is his role in this team? Like, it's not clear uh, in the way that everybody else sort of seems to fit and have a um, have a position on there. So that, to me, is, is is you know, maybe part of this is, like, what should he be doing? Should he be creating more? Should he, you know, like, what should be happening out there with, you know, guys like Thornton? You know, and Thornton, you know, it was clear his point guard, and, you know, maybe the talent just wasn't quite there. He's a great on-ball defender, but it just never came together. You know, Frank Jackson, um, Frank Jackson, you know, a combo guard thing, you know, not that great of a, of a playmaker per se, um, you know, and that was a whole team where you had three guys, you know, you had three guys who were, you know, essentially combo guards that they tried out at point guard and they had Matt Jones, who was in no way a uh, combo guard that they also tried out at point guard. Um, so that was kind of a mess all year, but, um, you know, and then Duval, I think Duval's role was pretty straightforward. It just was a matter of, you know, getting Mike Krzyzewski's trust. And I guess you could say, you know, what exactly did he have to do to that? Maybe it wasn't clear. You know, so so I certainly understand that point of view. But like his role was at least fairly clear. But like with Cam Reddish, like what is he like? What is his job on the team exactly? You know, what should he be doing? It's it's just not exactly clear how the offense is designed to utilize him. I mean, I still think he's pressing and just the confidence that that shot right before half against Wake um, hopefully gives him could be a game changer. I would disagree. I mean, obviously, it's very rare that Duke even runs half court um but when they do they actually i they do run a lot for reddish usually when they do run a half court set it is for reddish because i think they do want to get him going and it's just it hasn't worked out too well i mean he i mean the first play against uh wake was for him i think he just dribbled off his foot or something he's almost kind of thinking well, ahead of first the 
The Go first ahead. play against Wake was a was the fast break. Right? He got the steal on the other end. I can't remember if it was a rebound. He came up with it and he leads the fast break or he leads the transition effort down the other way. And then yeah, he dribbles it. I mean, I don't think it was a run for him. And he just he had the ball in his hands like uh, after. And I don't know. I can't remember if he fed it to somebody and got it back, but it wasn't like a setup play. Like, but yeah, he dribbled it off his. Foot. Well, even if not that specific play, I th- I have seen them run a lot for him. He's just struggling right now. I mean, I still think he's just pressing. I, I it's just his. It's just about his confidence. I I am hoping that that play against Wake gets him going because no matter what, I mean, Duke's gonna need to hit some outside shots and. Zion's not going to go three for four all the time, and I don't know if you can count on uh, Barrett to be consistent. He can hit from outside, but I, I wouldn't depend on it all the time. So well, I think I think Cam, he's, he he almost looks like he comes in, and it's just I mean I called him early on like he almost comes in looking like he wants to be a microwave Vinny Johnson. He's just so aggressive, and. Hopefully the game slows down a little bit for him. I just think it's going a little too fast, almost like a. It's, you, you, I mean, the comparison skill set wise, no, but just in in kind of the mind going ahead of the body, it's it's a Chase Jeter thing. Chase lost a lot of balls off his hands um, at Duke because he was just he was thinking ahead before he even got the ball, and at times that seems to be Cam's issue. So, you know, I think he'll eventually put it together. And I think, you know, Mike Shefsky keeping in the starting lineup is a, is a vote of confidence. Um, you know, the skill set is there. And they are going to need him because, uh, first of all, you know, your two big scorers aren't always going to be on the floor. Somebody's going to get in foul trouble. We've seen that with, uh, uh, you know, despite the fact that uh, Zion is actually not very foul prone. You know, we talked about defense. One of the interesting things is he and Trey together, if you add up their fouls called for 40, they don't foul out between the two of them. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you round up, it's but between the two of the, you know, Trey is at 1.7, can't, uh, Zion is at uh, 2.8. So these are guys who aren't committing a lot of fouls, um, you know. Uh, but there is going to be some point where they're not on the court, right? So you're going to need that guy who can get you a bucket. You're also going to need it because so much of the offense, when teams start sagging against Duke, you're going to have the three-point line open, but you're also going to have slashes open and things like that, and just being able to move the pieces around have somebody who's moving off the ball. And that's where I think he could really, you know, have an impact as well. Cause he's got those long arms. He's got great leaping ability. Um, you know, you can see it come together. So they are going to need to figure that out. It's, it's, you know, back to the Duval thing. The best version of Duke last year was the version that figured out, you know, maximize the talents of Duval. We never, you know, quite got there, you know, despite his great game against Kansas. Um, and the best version of this team is the team that, that figures out, you know, how to maximize Cam because Jack White is not the same guy. You know, people say, oh, you got to start Jack White. You got to start Jack White. You have to understand that what Jack White is doing is amazing, but he's doing it within the role that he's being asked to play. If he was being asked to play the Cam Reddish role, it's going to be a different result. He's not going to be able to, uh, to to carry your team. So you got to get um, Reddish going, you know, at least get him back to some of the early early season prowess, you know, he had in uh, – in in uh the, in in the early game uh, and hopefully it'll happen you know maybe that shot will key it he had a nice uh dunk uh early in the in the first half of that game too good recognition went baseline you know got to the rim that was nice you know um but you know we hope that would happen after texas tech too so we'll see but look it's it's the season's a marathon it's not a sprint you know we're in early january this team cliches what's that how's <laughs> it cliches yeah, but it's true, and it's very important to remember because you think back to that. We always, you know, Duke, you tend to judge teams' performance by the championship teams. So you think back to that championship team in 2015. I don't know if they'd even lost one of those two hard. You know, they had the two back-to-back 
absolute back to the drawing board losses against NC State and Miami. And it was right about this time, you know, it was in early or mid January of 2015. So we haven't even gotten to that point. We're barely at that point where, you know, everybody was writing that team off because they couldn't play defense. So that's going to happen with not just Cam, but it's going to happen with this team. There's going to be a game they lose and they're going to look terrible. And everybody's going to say, I Duke has been figured out, you know, and then we'll see what they do. So it's just really important to remember. And it's even true more so now with freshmen because the development curve is just different uh, with freshmen. I think these, these teams take longer to come together. Um, so, you know, that's still going to happen. And I think Cam will pick it up. But um, Yeah, I mean, you know, game just needs to slow start. down. I mean, I was joking before that it's almost like Javin, his first two seasons and the start of his uh, junior season, he switched bodies uh, with uh, Cam Reddish around Maui time. And uh, since then, it's like two different players. But obviously, that's a joke. But, I mean, the foul rate and uh, the turnover rate, obviously, you'd hope that improves. It's pretty awful right now um, because that's going to get in more minutes, especially in crunch time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's huge. Uh, Trey, Trey Jones, I will say, Duke did have a bunch of turnovers against Wake, which is surprising. Trey Jones is not – he didn't, and he hasn't. And I think he's already – I believe – He's had the most seven plus no turnovers, seven plus assists, zero turnover games. He's tied for like the career record. It's been like, yeah, it's been obviously 14 games, which it's is just amazing. absurd. He's as a 83 to 14 assist to turnover ratio now, which is just so insane. And he had that one turnover. I was kind of watching to see what the score would be because his one turnover against Wake, he tried to force a ball into, I believe it was Zion and it went off of Zion's hands and went out of bounds. So, by all rights, it should be uh, Trey's turnover because it was a bad pass to try and force him there. But I was thinking, you know, if that was a Cameron, that scorer might have might have might have charged that another way. Um, so he'd be averaging, but he's averaging one turnover a game. I mean, fourteen turnovers in fourteen games is ridiculous. You think about the great Jason Williams. You know, his jersey is hanging at Duke. That guy had twelve turnovers in his first two games. You know, so you're talking about fourteen turnovers. It's really impressive. You know, that may be the stat of the season you know, offensively for Duke, because those are just possessions you're not giving away. When you get more bites at the apple, you know, that's how you win. You know, you get more shots. It's one way to make up for an underperforming half-court offense, just take more shots. And, you know, when you don't turn the ball over, you you get more shots. But 83 to 14, you know, there, I mean, the, there was a decent portion of that game where he was for the season averaging less than a turnover a game as a point guard. That's, that's really, uh, really phenomenal. Okay, well, I think we've summed up uh, Duke's uh, week pr um, pretty well. I will add uh, one more Duke um, fact, or not fact, just kind of interesting point. Duke, the top 25, obviously, I, I hope everyone, I mean, yeah, it's a, it gives everyone a free and easy excuse to just be angry on Twitter, because what's better than that? Um, but the top 25, it's obviously fluid. It's obviously different people's opinions, but... In terms of how it looked at the beginning of this week, no matter what you feel about where teams should be ranked, the bottom line is that it makes it obvious that Duke's going to have played a ton of quality teams by the end of this year. I mean, in terms of just how it looked at the beginning of this week, Duke plays in the top out of the top 25. Duke plays 11 out of those 24 teams. Obviously, they can't play themselves. Out of the top 13. They play seven out of those 12 teams, nine games against seven out of the 12 teams because they play Carolina and um, Virginia twice. I mean, 
I mean, so, so that they're going to play a bunch of good teams. What's interesting is that the schedule. I mean, I, it's almost so. I don't know if the correct word is fair, but it, it's so remarkably balanced because moving forward, Duke plays 17 more regular season games. Eight are against ranked opponents. Take a guess at the number of times Duke plays back-to-back ranked opponents. Uh, currently ranked opponents? Uh, twice? Once. They play NC State and UNC back-to-back yeah. February 16th and 20th, which is a Saturday, Wednesday. Both are at home. I mean, that, that's – I mean, it's just unbelievable how they only play one ranked team out of the two games each week, each week. And again, it's fluid. Everything can change. It most likely will change. But, I mean, St. John's, I think they lost to Villanova. It was either today or yesterday, so they're probably out of talk. I mean, everything will change. But it's just looking at the schedule now, it's really interesting. I mean, it's so balanced. It's almost like – it almost got me thinking, like, that's really shady at first. Well, so, I mean, actually, I think it's a little harder than you're letting on, though, because you talk about – you know, so Duke – you know, the three best teams – so the, the cream of the crop in the ACC right now is Duke, Virginia, Carolina, Virginia Tech at the very top of the ACC. Um, so, you know, uh, Duke plays Virginia Tech. They play them on the road. They play Virginia twice, so they have to go on the road to Virginia, too. Uh, you know, they play Carolina twice, obviously. So if you think about it in context of, say, you know, North Carolina and the, and the great rivalry of things, they play Virginia Tech once, but they get them at home. They play FSU once, but they get them at home. They only play Virginia once. They get them at home. Well, that, that's why I started off saying how difficult, how many good teams they play. Yeah. It's just I'm saying kind of if you – Based on that, they're fortunate in that it, it doesn't all come in a wave because, I mean, that happens sometimes just the way things work out. So, yeah, yeah. That, that that was my original point that Duke plays a lot of good teams. So yeah, I'm not they saying do. they're lucky in any way. Uh, it's just the way the schedule, the ACC schedule is. Thank goodness they're not playing them all at the same time. It just sucks that uh, the schedule is what it is in, in the ACC. There's certain purists among us that, you know, if the league would go to uh, – 16 teams and you could split up and have the eight team old ACC and just play play an old ACC round robin and never the twain shall meet on the other side. So, but, so, uh, so eliminate, eliminate obviously the cold not going to happen. What's eliminate, that? The, eliminate the cold weather teams and just kick out uh, Pittsburgh and Boston College. They stink anyway. Yeah, you know, you could do that. And uh, some of us never warmed up to Florida State. So, you know, it's it's uh, let's let's just uh, go back there. Well, I, I, I will mention um, Maryland into returning. Did you did you hear the end of uh, the uh, ESPN halftime report uh, with Jay and um, whatever his name uh, and uh, Seth Greenberg again with the Wake halftime report? I don't remember. I... It, it was remarkable. It's the first time I've heard them give non cliche analysis in years. And you know what they said? It was that Duke better be careful because playing at Florida State, you know, it can be distracting in the stands. And I'm just like they started like laughing to themselves. I'm like. That's, yeah, that's just well, of, of all times to kind of go off the uh, script. That that was very interesting. So yeah, Jay would know, right? Didn't the 2002 team was that their first loss of the year was down at uh, Florida State there? So could could yeah. handle the lovely ladies in the stands. Uh, ma- Look, Duke has played terribly there in what used to be the uh, Lehigh County Civic Center, and now it's the Tony Tucker something another. Uh, so uh, 
yeah, Duke has always played terribly down there. You know, it's a big game. That's the thing about Duke. And everybody, you know, all the things about ah, Duke's last team to play a true road game, like that matters, you know? Like if you're Duke, you're playing nine games in the ACC on the road and you're the biggest game on the on the, on the the calendar for, for all these teams. So the students actually show up, you know? And uh, I mean, now that they played a road game, I mean, does, does, like, I don't think that proved anything. So, I mean, it doesn't even matter. Um, no. All right. So, so we covered that. Excellent. I, I'm trying – I'm trying to do my best to not mention terrible reporting, terrible articles, and bad analysis as much as I can this year. I'll give myself like three times um, where I'll, I'll allow myself, and I might have already used one with the uh, Jay Williams and Seth Greenberg thing, at least on Twitter. I'll, I'm, I'll talk about it if necessary or not, or if I feel it's important more um, on the podcast because then I can give context. But on Twitter, it's just it, it's easy to work everyone up by just mentioning anything about somebody reporting something about Duke or somebody saying something about Duke. And I don't even want to deal with that. I'm staying away from all that. So let's finish up. They will get tested. You would assume Florida State actually. Uh, I don't think I mentioned this. They just played Miami. They were up 13 with like six and a half left. I can't give specific details because I kind of just glanced before we started. I, I don't think they scored for like from like 630 to like 30 seconds left. So uh, Miami cut the 13 point lead to I think two. And uh, then Florida State scored on a follow with like 30 seconds left. Miami missed a uh, follow dunk and Florida State pulled it out. But it just goes to show that is as consistent a team inconsistent a team as you'll find every single year and it's remarkable like they can be the most talented team in the world and they can lose any game at any point they could have, they could be a team devoid of talent they'll find a way to win within each game they'll be up and down it's it's I, they're they're consistently inconsistent yeah i mean that's what it's uh, been like under the uh under the current coaching regime, I mean, it's uh, it's same here, you know, it's uh, you know, same stories every year. So um, we'll see. But you know, that has been a uh, that has been a tough place for you know Duke to play. You know, it, it always seems you know there was a time period where Duke would always play very well in November, and December, and you would just look and see when's that Florida State, and you start thinking about where's the first loss going to be. You know, like the that great 2002 team. I'm pretty sure their first loss that year. I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be wrong about that. But at least, you know, one of the early losses that year was at Florida State. You know, they went down heavily favored and, you know, came out with a loss. It just seems like it happens, um, you know, with, with some regularity. That's always been a tough place for uh, – that's always been a tough place for uh, for Duke to play, um, you know, because that's a game where the fans will get into it. Um, you know, it's, it's not the biggest arena. So, you know, everybody's – you know, you, you really feel that crowd and uh, – We'll see how they do. So it'll be it'll be a good test. Uh, it'll be a good test. You know, and we'll have to watch too with Duke's uh, offensive rebounding numbers because if you look at things coming out of that, uh, excuse me, the de- de- defensive rebounding numbers coming out of the Wake Forest game that are a little bit of a red flag. You know, the ease with which Wake Forest got offensive rebounds in the first half was a serious problem there. Now Duke did a better job in the second half. I think I think Duke gave up ten offensive rebounds in the first half to Wake Forest and three in the second, something like that. But you know, you, you got to limit teams on the as good as Duke is defensively. It's very hard to defend twice on the same possession. So, you know, yep. keep an eye on that. You know, as they go down to Florida State. And then uh, against Syracuse, my bull prediction: Syracuse will play zone. Crazy week for Zion. Absolutely crazy. It was also Trey's birthday against uh, 
Wake Forest. He got a fresh haircut, looking fresh to death there. So that was an important uh, event. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's all we have for you. So thanks for listening. Look uh, up the Duke Basketball Corner podcast on iTunes. It's under Commerce Corner. Subscribe, rate, review, hopefully with nice things. And thanks so much for listening. Ray, appreciate your time as always, and we'll be talking soon. Yep, sounds good. Thank you.